Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, always look forward to having my colleague Mona Charon as a guest on the show. Mona, good morning. How are you? Thanks, Charlie. I always look forward to it, too. Mona, <laughs> I, I have to warn you. Okay, I'm ready. The NSA is listening to this podcast. In fact, they have listened to every one of our podcasts. They they are tapping our phones. They actually know what I'm going to ask you before I ask you. I think they have implants in my brain. <laughs> okay, so so if we speak very quietly, it doesn't help. Be no, able to hear us. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think that. See, the, here's the here's the problem, Mona. I, I guess you know. I was thinking about this yesterday, that that if I said some batshit crazy stuff like that, people would go, oh, man, that's Sykes. He's he's an, he's, he's an idiot. He's a, he's a moron. I mean, it would just right. it would it would be the kind of thing that for most people, if you say stuff like that, they 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 wrap you in a in a white sheet and they take you away. Right. They don't. Or, you know, you smile politely as your eyes dart back and forth thinking, where are the exits? <laughs> well, well, exactly. And, and th- this is. Uh, you know, part of me sort of admires the, um, you know, it, it admires the world that Tucker Carlson has created himself. I mean, it's a consequence-free zone. He can get away with anything. He can say things that are just, uh, you know, they, whether they're racist or they're just flat-out lies or they're just crazy. And everybody kind of knows they're crazy, but he's Tucker Carlson and there are no consequences. Well, and he has a playbook he's following. I mean, don't remember early in the Trump presidency, the famous tweet about Obama tapped my wires or whatever he said, right? right? And I had the exact same reaction you're describing, sort of, oh my God, he's really losing it now. He's he's off into crazy talk. And, um, And of course, his audience believed it, thought it was fine, and there were no um, negative consequences, probably only positive ones for him indulging in this fantasy. Um, And so, you know, Tucker, who was, as we all know, you know, a reasonable, rational person in the past, has now sort of said, okay, I guess crazy is the way we roll now. And uh, so he's, he's doubling down on it. But let me make a confession here. My, my lizard brain is actually getting tired. And, and, and my lizard brain is, th- this is the part of my brain that I used to understand what's going on. Because, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like a Rosetta Stone. How do you interpret what, you know, my pillow guy is saying or what Charlie Kirk is saying or what the old, what the orange guy is, is saying? So it's my, you know, if, if, if you tap into your lizard brain and everybody has one. Um, you, you kind of can understand where they're going and why they're saying what they're saying, but it's, it's been taxed. It's, it, 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 it has been, I, 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 what's interesting about this particular thing about the NSA is number one, Fox news, um, itself is not covering the story at all. Um, but it, have you noticed some of your former colleagues at national review are going, well, how do we know it's not true? And and this is the thing about stuff like that. It's not falsifiable. The NSA issues a statement saying they're not doing it. And mm-hmm. everybody's going, but you know, it could happen. And mm-hmm. so it's 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 out there. So speaking of yep. yeah, speaking of lizard brain update, yep. um, and, and how the crazy spreads. My pillow guy is going to end up in a ward somewhere. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, this guy is just he's out there, but he continues to be quote unquote taken seriously by people with access to power. I mean, he has that crazy rally in New Richmond, Wisconsin, and Donald Trump, 
who, believe it or not, was the former president of the United States. And that's <laughs> a, I mean, still, five years later, it's still hard to get your head around that. Shows up, I mean, he, he appears by a, by a jumbotron. Uh, to give some sort of what uh, you know, you know, cover to what Mike uh, what Mike Lindell is saying, and Mike Lindell is also now being touted by Steve Bannon, who we, we can all roll our eyes about this, but Steve Bannon has a constituency out there on the right, people who take this seriously. And can I just play a little soundbite from um, this is this is this is Steve Bannon talking to Mike Lindell and talking about how the big state wants to shut down Mike Lindell and the lawsuit against Mike Lindell for lying about Dominion voting systems is pretty much exactly what Adolf Hitler and the Nazis did in 1930. Okay, so <laughs> we are we are we are back to it's uh, it's Hitler, it's Dominion voting system, the government. Hitler, Mike Lindell, I don't know who he's supposed to be in this scenario, but he's 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 in he's in he's on his way to the death camps. You think I exaggerate? Here is uh, Steve Bannon. This case speaks to something that's much larger than Mike Lindell and my pillow. Big. What this is trying to show is trying to shut up the business community and businessman to say, hey, if 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 you raise your voice, if you try to have any opinion at all, we're going to come and sue you. And most business people are going to sit there and calculate, hey, you know what? The legal is going to cost me this. I'm going to lose customers. I'm going to do it. I got to focus on the business. They're yeah. just going to shut up. This is this is this is to get people to shut up and just go along. This okay. is how. Hey, look back in the 1930s. Ah, okay, Don't take it go. from Steve Bannon. Read the history of of the 1920s and 1930s. I'm going to pick a random case. In Nazi Germany, yep, random. Just look at the business community. Look what happened. What you can't happened. look if you continue to look the other way and shut up. Then the oppressors, the authoritarians, get total control and total power. Right, absolutely. Okay, just read the history of this. That's what this case is about. This case is they wanted Mike Lindell to shut up, and they went to the heart of where he got his resources, my pillows. Is that not right? Yep. This is really they want every businessman right. to shut up, and they're telling you if you raise your voice, if you have an opinion, I'm gonna go after your business. <sighs> yeah. Uh, yeah. See, so businessmen are now discouraged from making up stuff out of whole cloth and just lying and fabricating stories. They're being discouraged from doing that, which is exactly what happened in Nazi Germany, right? Mona? Yeah. Also, they they wore a lot of masks in Nazi Germany. Yep. I think we learned from uh, from uh, <sighs> the Georgia lady. But um, people who want to make you do horrible things. It's, you can't tell people straight out, you know, I want you to do something terrible. I want you to do something bad. They always have to frame it as you're, you're only, you're only punching back. You're only, you're the victim here. You're only uh, defending yourself yeah. because nobody wants to see themselves as the bad guy. And so, you know, they are portraying um, this Lindell character as a victim and themselves as victims and so on. Um, and, and let me just say another word about about the courts, because uh, it underscores something that Jonathan Rauch has been arguing very eloquently about. And I, I was very impressed with his book, The Constitution mm -hmm. of Knowledge. I think everyone should read it. Um, but one of the things that he points out is that, you know, there are a few um, realms of life that are sort of 
based upon not accusations, not somebody told me the NSA is listening, but actual proof. And the courts are one of those places. And we cannot emphasize too often the fact that every single lawsuit that was brought regarding the so-called stolen election failed because there was no evidence. (laughs) And all of these conservative Republican judges some of them appointed by Donald Trump said, nope, no evidence. And, um, you know, uh, we have to constantly remember that that method of attaining, of, of ascertaining whether something is true or not is, is really critical to a functioning society. One side gets to present its evidence, the other side gets to present uh, opposing evidence, and then you, you decide on the relative merits of the case. Um, it, when Rudy Giuliani was uh, was taking one of these cases to a court of appeals, I think um, he he was asked, "Well, are you alleging fraud?" And in a courtroom, he had to say, "Well, no, no Your Honor, we're not alleging fraud." You know, and then it was like, "Well, what are we doing here?" Right? No, this is this is an important point. If there's if there's one bright spot, it would be that. So I, I want to come back to the elections in just a moment. Have you noticed though? That that ninety percent of some of this right wing pro Trump media commentary involves uh, claims that that they are not allowed to say this. They are being silenced. They're being told mm-hmm, to shut mm-hmm, up. And of mm-hmm. course, they're they're saying that their voices are being silenced on Fox News or on cable television. I mean, I mean, this is the thing: is no nobody is nobody is saying to shut up. They're just saying, you know, um, if you're if you're a liar, you're going to be held accountable for it. But this this playing of the victim card has become uh, it's absolutely completely reflexive it it's so so much so that uh, you know that you have people um you know people like ben shapiro who is trending on you know facebook and every social media metric you could possibly imagine mm-hmm. constantly whining about you're not allowed to say blank which he is saying it's like right, ben, right, you right, just right. freaking said it okay okay so, so but yeah. all right which and it is i mean sorry but it is bullshit okay yeah. fine but but um, I also, you know, my both sides hat, put on my both sides hat. Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, there is a phenomenon, no question, out there in the world that people do resent, which is being told constantly that the terms are changing and that you have to say the right words or you're, you know, you're, you're committing a microaggression. And so that is the, um, that is the atmosphere in which claims like this get some traction. Well, that's right. And, and this is where, where people like you and I get in trouble because we actually try to engage in a little bit of nuance and say, OK, here here is um, here is something that is happening, um, which is real. But this reaction is extreme and unwise. Well, exactly. you know, um, that there's there's a limited amount of tolerance for that sort of thing. OK, so let's go back to the election lies, which are out there. And as you point out, not a single court anywhere in the world has given any um, uh, validity to these charges, which have, you know, taken on the the status of urban legends. And of course, uh, we, we haven't even seen the worst of it yet because we haven't gotten the results from that fake audit in Arizona, which, <sighs> which they are trying to replicate in state after state after state. So this is going to be this is going to be the stab in the back um, myth that will, since we're all doing 1930s, 1920s analogies, that, that is going to shape uh, American politics for the next generation. I mean, I'm sorry, it's not going to go away. It's not going to be refuted for, you know, 20 years from now, there will be people out there who will be sitting at the bar 
explaining why Donald Trump really won the election in 2020. But this is why I'm a little bit cranked up about what's going on in New York City. Okay, so yeah. people are going, wait, 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 Charlie, what's your, what's, what's your segue? Have you noticed, by the way, that already Donald Trump has issued a statement saying, see, if New York City can screw up its elections, maybe that means that we should look at the <sighs> 2020 election. Nobody really knows. You got people like Charlie you know, Kirk out there shit posting, saying yep. if New York City can inadvertently count 135,000 ballots, what could that tell us about ballots counted in Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Arizona? So you know that that's going to happen. I mean, Except they didn't count them, no, right? No. I mean, this was a preliminary report about how the vote counting was going in the first ranked choice voting primary in New York. And they issued a preliminary report that they say, whoops, that was not right. We hadn't accidentally included these uh, sample ballots. Okay, so they didn't count them. They almost counted them, but then they caught their error. So that's it's that's different. not nothing. Yeah. I mean, it is different. I mean, obviously, it's not good. Uh, it will. A lot of people won't hear the explanation, and they will only hear that there was a mistake, and they, it will contribute to all the conspiracy theories about how elections are are fraudulent. But um, yeah, we, but we, it, we, it we, isn't yeah, that. Yeah, we should back up a little bit and assume that people are living their lives, and the New York City mayor's election is probably not top of mind for most people if you don't live in New York City. But they're using ranked choice voting. This is actually a very high profile test of a really good idea. So this is the other thing that's got me. Ranked choice voting is a good thing. I'm in favor of it, but I'm afraid it's going to be discredited by this. But so that they actually are using it in the mayoral primary, uh, the first round, sure. first choice votes, Eric Adams, who is a uh, African-American former, well, he's a current police captain, former police captain, moderate, um, uh, had a pretty strong lead, nearly 10 point lead in the election. People assumed that that meant that he was going to win the nomination. Uh, what happened yesterday was New York City Elections Board then reported the second choices as you go through ranked choice voting, which we can explain in a moment. And that lead almost completely disappeared down to about two percentage points. Um, over a woman named Garcia, who would would be a would be a good mayor, but in any case, uh, people were really shocked. You know, that the election result might have been uh, so dramatically changed. But then came all of these discrepancies and the walkbacks, and then they started saying, "Okay, this this doesn't look right." And then by ten thirty last night, they released a statement saying that they had failed to remove sample ballot images used to test the ranked choice voting software. So they ran these test results producing 135,000 basically non-existent votes, at least in that preliminary report. And everybody's going, oh, my God. And New York City Elections Board, I mean, they've been dysfunctional and they've had charges of nepotism and incompetence. This is what's really frustrating to me. You know, well, number one, I think it's going to really damage ranked choice voting unfairly. But at the moment, when it seems so important to encourage confidence in the electoral process, we get this foobar for the ages out of New York City. <laughs> I, I, right. I, and I, don't forget the foobar that happened in Iowa during the uh, pro, during the caucus last year. So there was that, too. There are moments, aren't there, where you start thinking, you know, we're not very – we're not very competent anymore, are we? But then again, that's uncharitable. The fact is they're trying no. new technology. They're making mistakes. 
Um, there are lots of places that already use ranked choice voting, by the way, Charlie, and have had no problems. Right. And yes. So we'll see. It may not be completely discrediting. We'll see. But um, but I'm having um, Catherine Gale on my podcast next week, um, who is uh, a proponent of what she calls final five voting, yeah. which is a little different from ranked choice, but it's a similar idea. And uh, we'll hear all about it from her. But I'm you know, I, the thing there, there are a couple of things about it uh, that and and sort of perhaps having um, nonpartisan primaries. But even if they're partisan, um, you you eliminate if you have ranked choice, it's less likely that somebody who has a you know fired up constituency of say twenty eight percent of the electorate um, can win because they get a plurality. Um, and uh, it's it's more likely than that the candidates knowing that they have to appeal to um, the voters of, you know, the other guys' voters, you want them to put you as number two, um, you're, you're going you're gonna to moderate and you're not going to be quite as nasty. Um, and uh, and I, I'm just reading um, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, The Team of Rivals. Yeah. And uh, Abraham Lincoln, in seeking the uh, nomination for the Republican Party's nomination for president in 1860, uh, was up against a really strong field. And his strategy was, be everybody's acceptable second choice, mm-hmm. <laughs> which worked for him. <laughs> well, well, no, I, I think this is, this is a good idea. But going back to my lizard brain here, I, I, just, I just sense the way it's going to play out. So, for example, if somebody raised the issue of mm-hmm. ranked choice voting for my home state of Wisconsin today, the immediate response would be, oh, oh, ranked choice voting like like they used in New York. And how did that work out for them? I mean, you just know that's the way it's going to be. Yeah, it's going to. Plus, plus my lizard brain also tells me that people like simple rather than complicated. Simple is you vote for the person you want, the person who gets the most votes, votes wins, done. As opposed to let me explain to you this system where you vote for five people, and then we have this runoff thing. I, I don't know. Okay, so can I ask you about something else crazy I don't understand? Could yeah. you explain to me? I, because, Mona, you need to be my explainer here. <laughs> Governor of South Dakota, Christ, Christy Noem, is sending 50 National Guards troops to the border because, of course, that's what that's what we have to do. Um, but they're yeah. they're paid for by a private donor, this billionaire fat cat Republican donor who is bankrolling the National Guard. So, I mean, are, are we kind of privatizing the, the military? What's going on? How do you do that? So a rich guy says, hey, you know what? I would like the military to do X. I'm going to find some right-wing or left-wing governor who is going to do my bidding. It's going to be right wing. Um, and I'm just going to bankrupt. <laughs> I'm going to write you a check for a million dollars and you send the troops here. Is, is, that, is, that, oh, is that the new, I, new thing? I, what, new what, what, could, what could possibly go wrong? Um, so, but, but before we get to that, Charlie, let, let, let's just pause on the idea of 50 National Guardsmen. There are 1,254 uh, miles of border between Texas and Mexico. Just look that up. <laughs> Um, so, um, yeah, if you space them out, um, they should be able to do a lot of good, uh, at, uh, protecting the border. And besides that's not their job. I mean, there are all kinds of, um, there are all kinds of legal limitations on how, 
the military can be used domestically. There's the Posse Comitatus Act. There's all kinds of stuff um, besides this problem that you raise, which is, wait a minute, you know, a private donor is paying for this. Is that even legal? I'm not sure. I asked two lawyers last night at dinner. Mm-hmm. They weren't sure. Um, but, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the idea that you could have uh, private donors uh, saying to governors, you know, I mean, imagine if, uh, you know, somebody said, uh, you know, how, how Republicans would react rather if uh, some big liberal money man said, okay, I'm going to hire a team of investigators to go down to Texas and find out whether everybody has, you know, their guns legally or not, you know, or, or you know, something along those lines, you know, there would be, of course, outrage, you know. Okay. So can I put this through my lizard brain filter though? Yeah. Which, which Christy Nome understands. Okay. She fights. Yeah. Caravans. That's right. Immigrants. Mexican rapists coming for you. Send guys with guns. She fights. Okay, see, yeah. winner. That's that it. That is. I have. I have. I have, I have. Who cares? Whatever it takes, by whatever means necessary. Uh, and yeah, whether it's legal or not, that's a, a trivial. Uh, Trivial consideration. Okay, so speaking of legal or not, uh, the House is voting, I think, today on creating this uh, this January 6th committee that will be the select committee. Uh, this, of course, is after the bipartisan, independent, uh, evenly balanced uh, committee was uh, was killed by Republicans. Uh, it looks like this is going to go through on on a party line vote. Uh, there, The Republican leadership in the House is actually whipping against it. Mm-hmm. You know, you just your thoughts on all of this. Just why, yeah, and, why, why and, Republicans are so adamant in not having a committee or a commission or any sort of investigation at this point to what happened on January sixth? Because they're guilty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's they they uh, are pretty sure that they don't want the truth to come out. Um, Mitch McConnell um, made it a point of personal friendship or, or, you know, a personal request that members of the Senate, the Republican members of the Senate vote against the idea of a commission. Uh, because, you know, there were, what were there, eight Republican senators who voted to impeach? Was that it? Or 10? I don't remember. But um, uh, see, this is this is the problem but, of history. I thought I, th- I thought it was seven. but okay. Oh, maybe it was uh, seven. Maybe it was seven. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but, you know, those you might have thought would have been open to a commission at least. Uh, but McConnell, you know, big footed it and said, no, please don't do this. And, you know, McConnell has no sense of um, no internal measure of right and wrong beyond what is good for the Republican Party. That's it. And so his view, it, you know, we, we read that excerpt about what was happening uh, with uh, Bill Barr, right? Uh, and uh, it, it, back in December of 2020, and Bill Barr uh, and McConnell, according to this uh, account by Jonathan Carl, um, had a series of conversations you know, what the president is saying is crazy. That's right. Well, but McConnell says, I can't say that. Why? I need the president to go down and win those two Georgia Senate seats for us. And by the way, the one of the people that he gave money to uh, in Georgia was uh, that 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 um, McConnell gave money to, that is, was, you know, Kelly Loeffler, who was uh, campaigning with Marjorie Taylor Greene and repeating the big lie and promising to go to Washington and not certify the election. 
Um, and so the idea that McConnell has clean hands here, no. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, um, they don't want the truth. They want to be able to rewrite history uh, at their at their leisure. Um, you know, it was Antifa. It never happened. People were they were nice tourists. Whatever it is, um, and um, and so you know, it's it's a very very uh, bitter moment uh, for people who thought that there was some integrity somewhere. So, I've been pushing for um, Liz Cheney to be added to this commission, this this committee, um, mm -hmm. I, and I think it's possible. Uh, Liz Cheney, I mean, uh, Nancy Pelosi has made it clear that she is well. At least she's suggested that she's you know open to having a Republican on in one of on one of the slots, one of the Democratic slots. I think Liz Cheney would be absolutely perfect. That yeah. that won't stop. Republicans from saying that this is a, uh, a politicized witch hunt or a partisan witch hunt. I mean, no matter what they do, they're going to get the accusation anyway. So you might as well have your your best, your brightest, your most for, your most uh, forceful advocates out there. So I I hope yeah, I, and, I and hope she does that. Right. No, I agree. And don't forget that um, you know while MAGA world will say what it will say, um, there's you know there's a significant minority of the Republican Party. 20% maybe, um, that is open to argument and facts. So I, I, I made a terrible mistake at the beginning of this podcast by activating my lizard brain because, um, <laughs> because now I'm seeing every, every, everything through that, that lens. And, 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 and the part, motto and part of the day. Well, I'm, and I think I've gone down a couple of levels here because I'm, I'm looking at the, the, you know, the whole issue of, of January 6th and wondering with this ongoing attempt to, uh, you know, you know, delegitimize the election, you know, getting even darker and more aggressive. At what point will MAGA world say, yeah, the problem with January 6th is that the, the, they didn't succeed. <laughs> you know, oh, they were doing yeah. the right thing. It wasn't, it was, these were patriots who were trying to right a terrible wrong because basically that's what Donald Trump thinks. He hasn't articulated it that way, but uh, given the trajectory, it's not impossible uh, where we're going on all this. I'm sorry. That was too lizardy. Oh, well, okay. Since we're on the lizard uh, thing, uh, the Paul Gosar story. Uh, okay. Yeah. Now, here's my question. I am old enough to remember when Republicans actually understood how to handle stuff like this. Remember Steve King from yep. Iowa, um, who was this backbencher who was constantly saying racist things. And finally, he just crossed the line where he's saying white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization. How did that language become offensive? And back in that day, in the midst of time, Republicans... Even the ones who looked the other way said, okay, that's going too far, white nationalist, white supremacist. So they stripped, they, the Republicans, stripped him of his committee assignments, and then he lost in a primary. You know, but frankly, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but, but King's comments are actually, actually seem kind of quaint compared to what Paul Gosar is doing. He's openly flirting with Holocaust deniers. These Nazi adjacent guys like Nick Fuentes. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, yesterday, we found out that he was uh, holding a fundraiser with Nick Fuentes, who is one of the so-called gripers. I mean, this is not this is not a this is not a subtle or ambiguous uh, thing with Nick. I mean, he, this is a Charlie, guy who's a, yeah, yeah. Since when did Holocaust making fun of the Holocaust become unacceptable? Since when? Yeah. I want to know. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that that's and and yet, I, I think the chances that that Kevin McCarthy. It will do anything about him are slim and none. 
I mean, they're exactly. they're just not going to do it. So this Gosar is how Gosar does. Yeah, sorry. No, Gosar I'm, does have the does have the distinction though of being from a very large family. He's got something like ten or eleven brothers and sisters, and they are all united in calling for him to be punished, to be kicked out of Congress. They think he's a danger to the republic. It's an interesting family story. <laughs> It, it is, and these, of course, the people who know him the longest and the best. Yes. And, and, they're, and they're all trying to tell America, this guy is nuts. He's terrible. Yes. We should yes. expel him from Congress. He's our <laughs> brother, whatever. it's. Yeah. Um, but it, it certainly is an indication of how far and fast the Republican Party has fallen, that they're not able to look at a Paul Gosar and saying it is not in our interest uh, to keep you in this this tent. I mean, it's morally wrong and it's politically wrong to do that. And they will come to neither conclusion. And, um, and, you know, people like Lindsey Graham will say, well, you know, you can't maybe you can't win without those people. So we, we have to we have to find make our peace with them. That's what you know, that's the logic of their uh, recent positions. So before we move on from the election, uh, and I mentioned this before we started the podcast, it's interesting. Uh, you had a piece uh, several weeks ago in the bulwark saying that the one thing the Congress really needs to address when it's dealing with elections is the Electoral Count Act, this bizarre, badly written law from the 19th century uh, that lets Congress, or at least opens the door to Congress overturning the results of, of an election. And you wrote that in the bulwark. And it's interesting how many other people have picked up on that since. It kind of feels like you got a little bit of a snowball going down downhill, gathering a little bit of momentum as people realize that you know, uh, yes, the whole problem of uh, how uh, how we cast votes is relevant, but right now the real danger is how we count those votes. Yeah, exactly. And look, I mean, you can, on the one hand, you can recognize that what many Republican state legislatures are doing is is being done in bad faith. Um, they are, um, you know, they are attempting to limit uh, the vote from constituencies that they think won't support them and whatever. Okay. Uh, that's not good. Uh, but the fact is the real urgent danger is what we came close to, what Donald Trump was urging upon the Congress um, in, in 2020, which is uh, in 2021, rather in January, which is to use their power to decertify election results from states where it went the other way. And Unfortunately, the Electoral Count Act is such a hot mess that it isn't entirely impossible that this could happen so that you could have a Republican Congress um, failing to acknowledge the votes of, say, you know, let's say uh, Michigan goes for the Democrat. The, the Republican Congress could say, well, we we think they were um, we think there was fraud in Michigan, so we're not accepting Michigan's uh, slate of delegates and uh, of electoral college votes, and we're going to disallow them. And, you know. and here's the thing, though: people say, "Well, okay, you want to you want to reform the Electoral Count Act, but why won't Republicans just filibuster that too?" And so, my answer to that is: first of all, they might, but. Um, it would be harder for them because their rationale for all of these voting changes that they're making in the states is that they're guarding against fraud. 
right? That they are trying to, you know, make sure that there's a voter ID component um, on ac- requesting absentee ballots um, so that, you know, you, it, ballot harvesting will be more difficult, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you and I have talked, I think, mm-hmm. before about, you know, that the Democrats should not die on the hill of voter ID. It's broadly popular, including with Democrats and minorities, and it's not something that we should make big, the Democrats should make a big fuss about, rather. Um, um, and similarly, by the way, I think that a lot of the attention about, oh, you know, they're trying to limit how much water you can give somebody, whether you can give somebody water while waiting in line to vote. Honestly, who cares, right? Don't don't make that the big issue. The Bring your own water. Um, the issue is changing the Electoral Count Act to make sure that a badly motivated Congress cannot easily, as it currently can, um, dismiss the votes of the Electoral College. Right now, it just takes one congressman and one senator to object to the count from any delegate, from any state. So increase that, you know, make it two thirds of those present yeah. or whatever. Um, similarly, uh, it now takes um, a majority, um, make it to, to disallow the votes from a state. The, the uh, one senator, one congressman was to consider it right. and then they have to go to their separate bodies. Uh, but you know, increase that to a supermajority. Take the wisdom of the Constitution. Use apply it here and clarify all of these rules um, that are unbelievably opaque in this horrible piece of legislation. Um, and it will be harder for Republicans to um, to argue that this is um, that this is something that is just increasing Democrats' power, right? Uh, so I. We'll see, but um, no, I think this is and 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 legal experts have long said that that law um, is just badly drafted. It it it, it, it it is just it's incoherently drafted. Uh, yep. The the history of the law is, uh, as we say, at, at minimum problematic. I I actually think they will address this at some point because I think the more people think about it, the more they'll recognize that this is crucial. Okay, can I talk about something that I have not actually mentioned at all? Uh, on yeah. on the podcast, I I've hardly mentioned it in my newsletter. I think I maybe I've had one tweet about it, but I am thoroughly obsessed about it. This collapse of the condominium down in Surfside, oh. Florida. It is such a terrible tragedy. It is so horrible. It is so incomprehensible to me how something like this happened. How building codes and building inspections did not catch the problem why repairs weren't made. I just, I'm, there's so much about this that bothers me that buildings like this should not fall down in the United States of America. And if yeah. this, and if this one fell down, then it's not the only one that's, that's on the brink down. I, I, I honestly do not understand just, I mean, parenthetically, I don't understand the people in the, in the adjacent condos who have not realized that you need to get out now. Uh, go. So yeah. any any yeah. any thoughts about this? Because I mean it just seems like a failure on so many different levels. It, it just feels like feels like a competence uh, failure, an engineering failure, a political failure, uh, a failure of, of of responsibility, a failure on the part of the condo board. Uh, all of the above. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, and it's it's just it is mind boggling. This is the kind of thing that you see happening in China. You know, there were um, buildings that collapsed because they were thrown up really carelessly and um, rail, um, rail, you know, trains have, have gone off uh, 
bridges uh, because of poor construction in in China, and they they left a whole trainload of people who had got, fallen into a ravine. They left them there because they couldn't reach they couldn't reach it to pull the bodies out. Um, and um, and and so you know you think of that kind of thing happening in in countries that are that are dysfunctional, that are poorly run, that don't have checks and balances. Um, you know the the uh, whenever you do anything in your home, I don't, you know, I'm sure it's the same in Wisconsin. I mean, we, we just put a um, awning in the mm-hmm. roof over our uh, backyard uh, to get some shade. Anyway, uh, it, you've got to get a permit. You've got to get the county to come over and make sure it's okay and it's not going to fall down. And you know that the that the contractor is is uh, certified and licensed and on and on and on. We have all these things for a reason, so that you don't have horrible tragedies like what happened in Miami. And it's just mind boggling that everything, because everything had to fail here. The inspections, the construct, everything had to fail. Uh, the government, the private sector, everything. It, it is it is so horrible. Okay, so I, I'm I'm in my mind I connected some dots here, and I'm not sure that that it's it's justifiable, but that's the way you know, that's just the way it goes. Uh, you know, this the question of what is a conservative, what is not a conservative, which has become very tedious because I think that the term conservative almost means nothing anymore, uh, mm-hmm. ex- except loyalty to Trump. But being a conservative does not mean that we don't repair infrastructure. I mean, is that is that clear? I mean, honestly, it's because I mean, I'm thinking about the infrastructure bill, and I don't want to get into the quagmire of, of the negotiations about this. But um, building things and fixing bridges and replacing roads um, does not strike me as radical socialism. It strikes me as the thing that any prudent uh, country does. We used to invest. In the country, we built the transcontinental, you know, the railroad. We we built the the interstate highway system. These were not partisan issues in any way. Now, I, I I'm I'm not endorsing everything in the Biden infrastructure package, but w- what is the conservative position on infrastructure? I would think that not updating infrastructure, not making repairs, not making investments is not conservative at all. And yet, in in the minds of some folks, just being against everything is the only legitimate conservative position. What, what well, do you right, down on because uh, so the Republican, the conservative position, the Republican position is, if the Democrats are for it, well, we're against it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Although, you know, I, perhaps, perhaps there would be enough Republicans who would say, Vis-a-vis the um, the first infrastructure bill that where they announced a deal on the 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 compromise bill, you know who there are enough people who would want to cut ribbons and and take credit for you know bringing jobs and bringing construction to their communities and so on and and by the way Charlie just on the subject of you know what what's the conservative view on on infrastructure you know I don't know anybody um, who thought of themselves as being conservative who didn't make the distinction. In the past, between what what governments borrow money for, right? I mean, to borrow money to win World War II, well, that's that's an important that's an important thing to do. To borrow money to um, r- improve your 
roads, bridges, airports, all of those infrastructure things that will then have benefits going down uh, into the future and help your economy thrive, that's a very good use of a bar- of borrowed money. A less good use of borrowed money is to is to just send checks to people. For that you should you should find the money elsewhere. But, you know, or at least that was the that was mm-hmm. the case that we used to make. But um but, you know, look, I, I actually think in this case, um, and I think he acknowledged it, um, that that Biden made a mistake, that the, the he should have just accepted the compromise, which would have been a big win for him, is a big win for him and for what he is trying to convey to the voters, namely, I can get things done. And... Um, uh, and and it would have you know Republicans would have been able to uh, you know say well I brought jobs to my district or or infrastructure to my district and they would have gotten something too everybody would have walked away happy it would have ratified the notion that we are not so dysfunctional and polarized that we can't do anything anymore and so it would have been great and unfortunately he did make that mistake which he rapidly tried to correct. But he made that mistake of saying, no, no, we're going to link it to the other infrastructure, which is the so-called human infrastructure, which isn't, which is a whole other thing, which the mm-hmm. left wing of his party very much wants. And, you know, look, I'm not passing judgment as to whether those that spending would be a good idea or a bad idea, but it, he really needed to just take the win. Right, you know? right, right. This, 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 was, this was a blunder, and I mentioned this yesterday, and, and, and the specific blunder was saying that he would veto uh, the bill that he just endorsed, if he right. didn't get the other thing, that kind of linkage was the was was the bridge too far. Um, obviously, they're going to pursue a a two tier, uh, you know, a, a two track uh, plan. And and the reality is is that progressives will get a lot of what they wanted in the reconciliation bill, but they won't get everything. But so it's going to be interesting to see whether or not the left wing of the party is willing to scuttle the, the Biden presidency, because, you know, Biden yeah. and Biden is now, you know, between these two vices. I mean, obviously, Mitch McConnell will do everything possible to derail his presidency to stop this. But also there is that wing of the party, the progressive wing of the party that will not you know that uh, for for whom the, the the perfect is the enemy of the good, and we'll see how pragmatic uh, or how ideological they are here. Well, uh, and I don't, I don't that, know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and the Democratic Party has, um, you know, famously has many more factions, many more rooms um, than the Republican Party at the moment, and um, you do have a struggle going on between um, people like um, James Clyburn, who I give a lot of credit for the fact that Joe Biden was the nominee in 2020 and basically saved America. Thank you, James Clyburn. Um, but um, between people like him, who he's a longtime congressman, uh, African American, he uh, is a moderate. He is he's against, uh, as as he says, you know, I've he he has condemned the left wing of the party, the the, the progressives for their what he calls sloganeering, things like defund the police. Um, he said, you know, in the '60s I was against burn baby burn, and now I'm against defund the police. It's not what I support. It's not what my constituents want, and it's harmful to the party. And then there's the AOC wing and, um, and they have a lot of support. So it's, um, it's, it's interesting to watch that play out. And of course I know which side I'm on. So this, the story about Jim Clyburn is very interesting. I'm really glad you brought this up because, uh, you know, he has the number three ranking uh, Democrat in the house of representatives. And I, I think 
obviously played a a central, if not the central role in the nomination of Joe Biden to be president. Yep. Uh, uh, so James Clyburn has done something kind of unusual. He has made an endorsement in an Ohio uh, congressional race to head off the candidacy of a, a supporter, a really close, uh, you know, ideological acolyte of, uh, of Bernie Sanders. And, yep. and, and he said that this is a direct quote. When I spoke out against sloganeering like burn baby burn in the 1960s and defund the police, which I think is cutting the throats of the party, I know exactly where my constituents are. They are against that. And I am against that. So he's willing to take a stand against what he sees as politically damaging elements in his own party in the way that Republicans, I think, have not um, been willing to do sometimes. Um, in their own party. Right. Exactly. They, exactly. But it is interesting the role that Clyburn is playing because he brings a huge amount of credibility. Um, I suppose you could say that he represents the Biden establishment in the party. But it does make you wonder how hot this internal civil war between the Biden wing of the party and the Bernie wing of the party might become and whether it might actually manifest in votes. I, I guess I'm scared. Every time I bring this up, I am reassured by people who say, Charlie, you need to understand that the Democrats are much more pragmatic, that in the end they will do the right thing. But the margins are so thin, particularly in the House of Representatives, it does not take more than a handful of, of folks in, in, in the House to blow up this whole thing. So I don't know. This is, this is a, a stay tuned. I sort of get the sense that everybody right now is just positioning Everybody is obviously, you know, laying down their markers. And so in, in some ways they're doing their job, they're doing what they're supposed to do. And it doesn't mean necessarily that it's going to blow up, but, but boy, it's a, uh, if Biden pulls this off, it will be one of the most impressive legislative victories that I can recall. Um, and, yes. and, and I say that advisedly because I mean, when you look back at other major legislative victories by presidents, they did it with huge, comfortable majorities. It's really um, much what Biden has to do is thread the needle in the most acrobatic possible way, like threading a needle while walking across um, a tightrope above a river of alligators. I mean, it's it's like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know, do you remember at the end of um, the campaign last year, um, there was a lot of talk on conservative sites and so forth saying, you know, I may just have to vote for for Trump because, uh, you know, even though he has his faults and everything, boy, the Democrats are crazy and they're so extreme. And if we vote for Biden, then we're going to get, you know, uh, Puerto Rico as a state and we're going to get the, the end of the filibuster and we're going to get, what else did they worry about? I don't remember. But anyway, they have a long list. Supreme Court. Pack Supreme Court. Right. And, um, and at the time I remember, you know, sort of stroking my chin and saying, ah, have they looked at the U.S. Senate? I mean, the members, the Democratic members of the U.S. Senate are not AOC types. I mean, there are quite a few. Well, there's Bernie Sanders, of course. Yeah. But there are quite a few, not just Manchin and Cinema. There's uh, um, the Delaware guy whose name escapes me right Coons, in a second. Right? Uh, Chris Coons. Yes. yes. There's so many others who are, you know, letting uh, Manchin sort of take the lead because uh, because of his the nature of his state and so forth, but um, they also don't want to um, to uh, blow up blow up the filibuster. They also have their hesitations about the the agenda of the of the uh, progressive wing of the party. So, you know, I was always skeptical that um, there was going to be this this rush to enact all kinds of um, extreme measures because the Democratic 
uh, caucus in the Senate is is not that leftist. There's Bernie, yeah, but there aren't that, and there are a few others, but. It's a mix. It's very much a mix, and so and so is the House Caucus. And unfortunately, as as I've said many times, we uh, don't hear as much about Abigail Spanberger as AOC, and yet she has just as much, you know, in 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 many ways is uh, just as influential within that caucus. And Abigail Spanberger types are the way for the Democrats to hold power. And they just, the, 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 the progressives don't want to accept that, but that's the reality because that's the nature of the country. It is. If they had a lot more Abigail Spanbergers, then they wouldn't have this razor thin uh, margin in, in the house. And she, and she's the kind who's most endangered by the defund the police rhetoric. Uh, it it exactly. is people like her and Connor Lamb who in fact are on that razor's edge. And if in fact there is going to be a Republican wave, they will be the most vulnerable. So Mona Chern, what else are you uh, looking at this week? What are you thinking about? What should we be paying attention to? Oh gosh. Um, well, I'm, I'm still looking at this, uh, 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 critical race theory stuff and reflecting that it is, despite what people say, it's not new. I went back and looked at a bunch of columns I'd written decades ago. And oh, and you you actually looked at, didn't you pull up a book of yours from a long time ago? And some yes, of these from, same from, arguments from that we've 19- been having forever? I, I, li- um, literally, I, I, I did a screenshot of a book that I published in 1990. So, you know, for these people who say, well, you don't understand what you're talking about. You and I, Mona, I'm sorry, we, we have been writing about this for decades. Yes. We were writing about this before Christopher Rufo was born. <laughs> I'm, I know that sounds like old people, but, but really, this stuff <laughs> and is- And get is, off my lawn. <laughs> no, well, I mean, so I understand the arguments against it. I have made the arguments against it. The, the problem right. is, once again, watching these arguments taken over by you know demagogues and charlatans who completely distort it and turn it into something else and and i know that you're going to be talking with uh on on your podcast beg to differ you're going to be talking uh with historian ron radash is that how you pronounce the name i'm sorry radash radash Radash. that's fine Uh, you know who who is very very familiar with uh you know demagogues like for example david horowitz and on my newsletter yesterday I quoted from a fundraising letter that I'd gotten from David Horowitz last uh, last fall, where he's warning about you know Sharia law and Islam in the schools, and it's you know again okay it, it buried in there there might be a nugget of something to be concerned about, but it is the extreme shrill panic porn uh, that we're seeing on the right, and my point was that. Horowitz is, uh, you know, screed about how they're taking God out of the schools and putting in Islam in the schools is pretty much exactly the same playbook as we're seeing with critical race theory. There's a lot of problems with critical race theory, and I have written about them and you have written about them extensively. But the way that it's simply being used as a cudgel and distorted and fudged by, you know, some of these folks is 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 a is is problematic, not to mention the uh, the the attack on 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 free expression, free speech, and academic freedom that apparently the right has decided that they're okay with. It. By the way, have you noticed how the whole cancel culture? I mean, cancel culture has they've dropped it apparently at least temporarily because they're engaging in it. I, 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 I mean, I, what 
I will, I will this let. cancel culture is terrible. Now, make sure that nobody can say anything about critical race well, theory. Well, yes, yes. Cancel. <laughs> we stand against cancel culture. And by the way, we need to cancel oh. this Olympic athlete who turned her back on the flag and she needs to be kicked out. I mean, yeah. And they do it without like taking a breath. There's no pause yep. between it. It's just like... Guys, I'm sorry. I I need to go back to my lizard brain to understand how this all works. (laughs) Mona Sharon, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. Make sure you check out Beg to Differ, which is Mona's podcast, comes out every Friday. This week should be very, very interesting. Mona, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Charlie. Great to be with you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.